Good to see you guys today. We're continuing with our series on 1 John. My name's Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and with this series on 1 John is entitled, So Our Joy is Complete. <clears throat> We've been going through, uh, you know, section by section. We start today with 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. The message is titled, An Advocate for Righteousness. And so, <clears throat> just to kind of give you an understanding of where we're going with this today. There is this burden that we have in this struggle, right, between being a child of God and then our our sinful desires. We talked about depravity last week and about how once we walk in the light, we understand and know that we are depraved. And then we struggle from that point on. Once we decide that we are followers of Christ, we struggle with this battle between being depraved and desire to be righteous. And, And it's a constant battle. And we're going to talk about that battle today in, in areas that you can be encouraged. And so I'm going to read the passages, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, in other words, the payment for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now that can be a little bit of an intimidating passage, right? But not if you don't understand the historical context of the passage. It becomes a little bit more uh, feasible to figure out. So historically, uh, I've titled this section, Sin Doesn't Matter. And what we do with each passage, you look at the history, then the spiritual aspect of the passage, and the personal. What are we supposed to do with it? Let me explain about what I mean by sin is a myth. We've been talking a lot about the Gnostics over the last few weeks because that was the reason that John wrote 1 John, to combat the bad teachings of this group called Gnostics. I won't go in and rehash all of that, and if you're not sure, you can kind of Google it and look it up, but this was a big influence, and one of the things that they taught was that since the physical world doesn't really matter, all that matters is knowledge. Therefore, even sinfulness, which is part of the physical world, is nothing more than an illusion. Don't get so worked up over this thing called sin. Because if if morality is just a function of the physical world that ensnares us, then it's really irrelevant. And once we have light and understand that the physical world is just a mirage, and really what matters is the spiritual world, once we have that, we'll realize this sin was just kind of like an imaginary thing. Therefore, Deeds done by the body are not important. Sin isn't real. The idea of morality is imaginary. It's subjective. The natural progressing of this teaching became what we call today moral relativism. It's basically the rejection of the idea of moral absolutes. I'm going to give you a definition. Morality cannot be objectively right or wrong. It all depends on what your society says or what you say. Therefore, there should be toleration for all standards of right and wrong or any aberrant behavior. 
no matter how offensive, since right and wrong is subject to the heart of each individual. That's kind of what happened and what was born out of the idea of the Gnostic teaching that sin is not really a problem. Don't worry about it. All these Bible thumpers and holy rollers, sin is not a big deal. No one, no one standard of true or false, right or wrong, good or bad, beautiful and ugly can preempt any other standard. No standard is valid for everyone. You can't expect others to submit to your assessment of good and bad, right and wrong. This was actually a core teaching of the Gnostics in Ephesus. And John felt it critical and crucial that this teaching be exposed and rejected. Because some of them were teaching sin is no big deal. He makes it very clear that the Gnostics could not claim to be followers of Christ, which they did. They said, we are Christ's followers. Christ is a source of light. It helped us escape the damages and all the stuff involved in the idea of the physical world. He makes it clear that they cannot claim to be Christ followers while basking in their own sinfulness, their own immorality, with no evidence of transformation. That's the historical part of what this passage is kind of pinpointing. The idea that sin is not a big deal. It's only a big deal if you're a Christian. So let's talk about the spiritual side. What about God? What does he do? I've titled this Our Heavenly Advocate. So what John teaches in this passage is that while true children of faith will seek obedience, we will not be perfect. Therefore, what we need in this battle between right and wrong and good and evil and trying to become more like Christ in our walk, what we need is an advocate. In reality, this section is expansion of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John teaches that we cannot navigate this expectation of obedience without divine help. But if we are truly children of faith, if we truly are following Christ, if we really are children of God, divine help will, in fact, be undeniably evident because of the work of our advocate. And this advocate that we're talking about, this advocate of Jesus is amazing because he, according to the passage, and he does three things for us. First of all, in verse 1, he pleads our case. Let me explain what the advocate does here. Our advocate, Jesus, stands before the Father... In heaven, pleading our case. Imagine, if you will, that you're in court and your lawyer is the judge's son. Oh, and by the way, they have a great relationship. No, dad, for real, he's innocent. Well, if you say so, son. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine why would you want any other type of representation? He says to his father, get this. No, 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 dad, don't look at them Look to me for their righteousness. I am providing it. Yes, yes, but God, no, don't look at them. Look at me. Look at the cross. I am providing their righteousness. And so our advocate is in heaven, and he's doing this, and we think about the death of Jesus as a singular event, and it was. He died once for all, and it is a, an event, but that just altered the process of how we interact with Heavenly Dad. And it continues to alter it to this day. It was like a massive course correction for a big ship. 
At first, it was God looking at us, and all he saw was unrighteousness and sinfulness, and there was nothing we could do to avoid it. And then once Christ died for us on the cross and resurrected and conquered death and the grave and sin, now when God looks at us, Jesus says, no, 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 look at me. Look at them through me. I am advocating for their righteousness because I have taken my righteousness and given it to them. But if we do sin, he says, we have an advocate to the Father. It's an amazing thing. You know what else he does? Not only does he plead our case, here's what else he does as our advocate. He pays our price. This is amazing. Jesus' work as our advocate goes far above and beyond anything a regular lawyer could do. I mean, imagine an attorney that says, don't worry. If you hire me, even if I lose, I'll say, no, judge, it was my fault. I robbed the bank. I stole the money. I committed the crime. Punish me. The case he makes for us is grounded in the fact that he did the work to secure God's favorable verdict. That's why the scripture says in verse 2 of John chapter 2, 1 through 6, he is the propitiation. In other words, the payment for our sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He's the one who endured what we would deserve if we were judged on our own righteousness. And think about this. The divine justice is not just set aside. It is fulfilled. And when he says he is the payment for our sin and not only ours, but for the whole world, what he's saying is this. There is only one way to redemption. It's the same for the whole world, whether you're Jew, Gentile, Asian, Greek, Roman, or from Bradenton. <laughs> it's all the same. It's Jesus. Myaka probably doesn't work. No, I'm just kidding. People from Myaka, it works for you too. When he says he's the payment for the whole world, he says anyone that wants to come to the Father comes through Christ. That's how you get this idea of righteousness. That's how this advocate becomes your advocate because it's the same way for everyone. Jesus is the way, not a way. And you know what else he does? He pleads our case. He pays our price. But then he also, as our advocate, changes our direction. In verses 3 through 6, he talks about the fact, you know, about sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate. And if you have this advocate, what will happen is you will walk in obedience. You'll walk in the same path that Christ walked. If you say that you know Christ, but you don't walk in his commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Here's what I know. And here's why the Gnostics were wrong. The consequences of our sin are always painful and costly. And they do remind us that sin is in fact real, don't they? Well, you can say sin is not real, but all I know is every time I do this, it costs me that. In fact, many of you, many of us, carry burdens of our depravity each and every day. But what happens when God becomes our advocate through Christ is our moral standard, our moral direction is transformed. And miraculously, for some reason, at that moment... We now seek to keep his commandments, as well as this desire to repent when we stumble. Now, some in church history have advocated that this part says that you have to be perfect. Perfectionism, based partly on verse 5 of today's passage. But actually, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 makes it clear. 
He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what he's explaining is there is this balance in the idea of Christ as our advocate. Yes, he advocates for our righteousness to God, but he also advocates for us to be righteous. And so there's this middle thing here. This idea, yes, you can still realize you're sinful, but you're still recognizing the fact that Christ expects obedience. And we aren't perfect. But there will be, because of our advocate, who pleads our case, pays our price, and changes our direction, there will be a definitive change in our walk, our decision-making. This is the work of the advocate. Let me talk about the personal side of this passage today. I want to talk about our earthly advocate. The first part was our heavenly advocate. This is our earthly advocate. Could you imagine? I put this on our social media campaign this week. Imagine your sinfulness if God had never intervened in your life. Can you imagine the consequences of all the wickedness in your life had there ever been an influence of righteousness? I mean, you still struggle, right, from day to day, time to time with sin and, and bad. But could you imagine how bad off you'd be if there were no breaks or checks on your sin? There was no moral standard to deter you? I mean, this is really kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Some of us have been to the point of the edge, and God has brought us back. Because of this, I'm going to introduce you this idea of two-way advocacy. Because here's what happens. You guys ready? Jesus looks at the Father and says, look at me for their righteousness. But that's not where his advocacy ends. Then he looks to us and says, look to me for your obedience. So you get this picture, right? He's, he's saying, no, 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 Dad. Stop. Look here. Hello? Me, righteous dad, look at me. Before you look at Joe, look at me. And look at Joe through me. And he's constantly doing that for us so we know that God sees us through Christ. But then while he's doing that, he's looking at me and saying, Joe, you want to be obedient? Look to me for that. And he's doing this at the same time. God, look through me. Joe, look to me. It's an amazing thought, right? It can be a little bit intimidating. Because, frankly, there's no more excuses for us. You can't say that you are a child of God and continually live in a life that has no bridles for unrighteousness. Because what happens is the spirit within me, within you, acts as an advocate for obedience. And it acts as a deterrent. Through the Holy Spirit, making just as the Holy Spirit, just as Christ makes the case to God for our righteousness, the Holy Spirit is making the case to us for obedience. He creates in us a spiritual component that drives us to desire obedience to God. And it begins to compete with and fight with the natural pull to sin. Therefore, in the heart of a true child of God, you want to know if you're a child of God, in the heart of a true child of God, there is no room for moral relativism. Eh, could be wrong, might be wrong, who knows? No, if you are a child of God, you walk in the light and you know what is right and wrong. The light gives you no excuse, frankly. 
for understanding what sin is, what it does to you, and what its consequences are. Therefore, you can see that constant, willful, unbridled disobedience is incompatible with being a Christ follower. That is what the Gnostics looked like in the first century church in Ephesus. They claimed Christ but had unbridled immorality. So you can't say he's your advocate to righteousness if there's no evidence that he's an advocate for obedience in your life as well. So no more excuses. But don't be overwhelmed. Because see, what looms in our hearts and weighs us down is this constant battle with the flesh, right? We get distracted by the fact that we have these addictive behaviors. Maybe we have an anger problem. Maybe we have arrogance. Maybe we're dishonest. Whatever your sinful issue might be, we have these things and we're so frustrated. How can I still be involved in these things? I don't want to be. Anybody relate to that or is it just your pastor? The reality of these flaws is quite troublesome considering today's passage. But don't be overwhelmed. Let me tell you why. It is the fact that you are frustrated with these tendencies. Get this. That indicates a new creature is fighting to take it over. That's your advocate right now doing his work. He's doing his thing right then when in the midst of struggling with depravity and sinfulness, I don't want to do that. That's you just saying, look to me for your righteousness. He's saying, hey, look to me for your satisfaction. Look to me for your fulfillment. Look to me for joy, not in sin. And it creates this divergent desire within us that is not there for the natural man. The natural man just grieves over consequences. The spiritual man grieves over disobedience. Now look, there are some extremely flawed people in this church. I'm going to name a few of them. Mark Curtis, are you perfect? No, you're not perfect. Not even close. But I can tell you this. I see overwhelming evidence that there is an advocate for righteousness in your life to Heavenly Dad and to your heart. I see it every day. Nicole Anderson, are you perfect? No, not even close. But there's overwhelming evidence that the Father of light has shown you your sinfulness and is advocating to you, Nicole, look to me for righteousness. And it's undeniable, the evidence. Cindy Lenu, are you perfect? No. I can give you a list of reasons why. But I can give you just as big a list of evidence of the fact that you have an advocate that is advocating for righteousness in your heart. And you are walking in the path of Christ. Your thirst for biblical knowledge is inspiring. Scotty T, are you perfect? I'm not. No. <laughs> Look at that shirt just right there alone. <laughs> but there is no question, as I've gotten to know Scotty T over the last year and a half, overwhelming evidence that God is advocating to his heart for righteousness and a transformed life and a new path and a new walk. And his new man is winning the battle. Sometimes he loses. 
but there's no question the direction. Of course, even in Christ, we will continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified. Let me just go ahead and break that to you. You're never going to be perfect. We will continually desire and desperately need the advocacy of Jesus, not just to God to see us as righteous, but to us in our own heart to make right choices. And we will need it in his forgiveness when we do inevitably fail. What we learn today is not that we're supposed to be perfect, but there should be an undeniable direction shift. Undeniable. There should be overwhelming evidence. This persistent two-way advocacy is inescapable when God truly saves a soul. It's not optional. John says, if you say you have Christ and you're not walking in the light and the path of Christ, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. He's not saying you're going to be perfect. He's saying your direction has shifted. I am so thankful, church, that Christ advocates in my heart for obedience every hour of every day. I am so thankful that through that advocacy, he puts the brakes on my sinful nature. The pain that I would have caused people in my heart and life and my family by now, if God were not advocating constantly to me to be righteous, it's scary. See, now what has happened is because of the light, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ's two-way advocacy, I can do the math now on consequences of sin. And my natural appetite for sin, while it is still there, has been diminishing. This is what John meant when he said this. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. There's where the perfection is. It's not in our walk. It's in the the love of Christ. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Not perfection, but being advocated to a certain direction. I want to relieve you today of the burden of feeling like, man, I just don't measure up to this salvation. You're right. You never will. Move on. But I don't want to release you from the responsibility of realizing if Christ has really saved me, there should be evidence of the fact that there is an advocate that is pulling me away from depravity, making me uncomfortable with it, making me struggle with that fight between the new man and the old man. An advocate that is desiring to give me a love for obedience. If you are truly in Christ, your advocate is working hard to convince you to change the way you walk. And while you won't be perfect, there will inevitably be undeniable evidence of a change in direction. Dad, I'm so thankful that you advocate not only to the Father for our righteous stance, but you advocate to me constantly to be righteous. Lord, I'm so glad that there is a struggle between my old man and my new man. I'm so thankful that each hour of each day you are advocating to me to look to you for obedience. Replacing the desire for sin with the desire to follow you in Christ. I pray for those in our church who are struggling with the idea of not being perfect. 
relieve them with the idea of being able to see a change in direction, a change in path. I want to thank you so much for those in our church that have overwhelming evidence of the advocacy for righteousness in their life. It's inspiring. It's encouraging. May you use it to spur all of us on to good works.